The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 3, and verses 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see everyone this morning. Before we dig into this passage that we've read together, let's ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, this morning we come before your word and we are confronted with the glory of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as that glory impacted the hearts of those we will read about today in a remarkable way, that it would impact our hearts. This can only be so if we are Our hearts are opened up by your spirit so that your word would be illuminated to us. And so we find ourselves in great need, Father, of your Holy Spirit to do his work. So we ask this, our Father. We ask it for the glory of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are continuing together in our study of John's Gospel. And we find ourselves at the end of the third chapter. 
And before we dig into this passage, I think it's helpful for us to get a bit of the background. In the Gospel of John, we are considering the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is specifically presented to us in John's Gospel, not so much as the king, as we have in Matthew's Gospel, not so much as the perfect servant, as we have in the Gospel of Mark, not so much as the Son of Man, as we have presented to us in the Gospel of Luke, but as the Son of God. So we had those beautiful words last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And then we have in the first chapter, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son of God. And as Jesus goes about and reveals himself to others, as others cross his path in these early chapters of John's gospel, they react to their encounter with the Son of God. And that's what we see here. We see a whole range of emotions. We have everything from joy to perplexity to outright anger as their paths cross the path of the Son of God. So, for example, you've got in the first, in the first chapter, you've got Philip and Nathaniel. And the Spirit of God reveals to them the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're overjoyed. And they can't keep it inside. They need to declare with joy that they have found the Messiah, the Son of God. But then last week we had Nicodemus, who in in fairness is is at least honest enough to acknowledge that there must be a divine source to the miracles that the Son of God is doing among them. And yet... He seeks to enter into this and to understand this in the power of his own intellect by the strength of his skill and experience in the law. And the Lord has to say, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't enter into it in that way. And well, he that has begun a good work will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And though we see that in time to come, Nicodemus will look upon the Son of Man lifted up and recognize him as the Son of God for now. His approach leaves him in perplexity. But then we have the Lord Jesus in the temple. And he goes there and sees that it's been turned by godless men into a den of thieves. And in righteous indignation, he overturns the tables of the money changers and says, Get out! Don't turn my father's house into a den of thieves. And they confront him on that and say, By what authority do you do these things? They were angry, for he exposes their hypocrisy and they're threatened. Well, in our passage today, we are going to see that whole range of emotion those whole, that whole range of emotion from various people as they confront the glory of the Son of God. 
and this morning as well, you will confront the glory of the Son of God. And I pray that your heart as well will be touched. But it can only be not in the power of your intellect, but by the Spirit of God. So may God work in our hearts to convict us and to open our eyes to recognize that this is indeed the Son of God. So that's a bit of background. Now let's get a little bit of context on this chapter, on this passage rather, that we've read. Well, first of all, when did this happen? And we're given some help with that. We have two phrases, after this and before that. And so we kind of have the time frame bracketed. In the, in the first verse we read, we have after this, and at the end of, uh, or at, in verse 24, we have in parenthesis, for John had not yet been put in prison. So we have this event taking place after something and before something. And so to understand that, I think, is important why we're given that context. So before we drill in, important that we get that context. So first of all, after this, well, what had just happened? The Lord Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem, and we've already talked about what happened there. He sees the religious elites, and he sees what they have done to his temple, and he exercises righteous indignation, and he is resisted by them. And then from there, when he's in Jerusalem, he goes and he meets with this man, Nicodemus, and there he has a man who is trying, without the new birth, to grapple with who he is. And he has to say, you must be born again. But then, after this, it's as though Jesus retreats, if you will, from the religious elites, and he goes up with some of his disciples to the Judean hillside. And there he comes, to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to the poor, to the broken, to those who recognize a need for repentance. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. But to many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. So the other thing, though, that it proceeds is, the other thing we read that is it's before John's, John is put in prison. And that, I think, is a significant highlight for us. It's a significant landmark because, and we don't have time to look at it right now, but if you want a reference for this, I would point you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. The public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ really commences with the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And so this is really pre-Jesus' public ministry. And so... Everything, and you feel at this point, we, we've been in John for a little while now, and you feel like a lot of things have happened. You're like, we've met a lot of people, we've seen a lot of activities, things have happened. But all that has happened at this point comes before what we find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. So just to give you an example of that, the disciples had not even yet received their official call. Jesus hadn't yet come to them and said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And yet they're here with Jesus in this story. And so it's almost as though they had a bit of a bivocational ministry going on. They were still in the fishing business, but they were doing part-time with the Lord baptizing in the Judean hillside. So it's good to get that perspective. But the most important reason why we have here that it was before John's 
uh, imprisonment is because it shows us the source of the conflict. John's ministry is overlapped by Jesus' ministry. Those two events come together, and it produces a conflict, and that really becomes the... uh, what's at the heart, what spurs this story uh, into motion. And so we have um, this unnamed Jew who is arguing with John's disciples over a matter of purification. Uh, Maybe it didn't go well, and his parting dig was, um, well, it looks like Jesus' ministry is a whole lot more successful than yours. And they take great offense to this, and they go to John about it. Um, And John sees no competition because he knows um, what he has been brought to do, and he understands the, the, the greatness of Christ relative to his role, and he gives his disciples a proper perspective, and in doing so, he, he gives to us a great, robust Christology. And so what we have in this chapter, really, is the jealousy of John's disciples, verse 25 to 26, the joy of John, verse 27 to 30, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, verse 31 to 35. And that's the three topics under which I'd like to consider this. The jealousy of John's disciples, the joy of John, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. All right, so this conflict. uh, It says that there was a discussion between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, If you're a careful student of the Word of God, you say, purification, purification. Where have I seen that before? Haven't we come across something on purification recently when we were reading John? You say, ah, those six stone water pots that were at the wedding. I wonder if there is any connection between these things. And I think there is. Because if you think about those cold stone water pots, they're pretty useless. I mean, they're pretty useless if your problem is that you've got a wineless wedding. It doesn't help you very much, does it? And yet, the Lord Jesus comes, says, fill these with water, turns them to wine. He becomes the host, brings joy to that whole wedding. And now we've got this situation where perhaps this, and I don't know what this discussion was, we're not told, but we just know that it was about purification and it didn't end well. That's about all we know. So, Maybe it was something like this. Uh, this Jew is saying to the disciples of John, like, what, what's with, with this, this long line of people that are standing up here? And maybe the disciples said, well, they're here to be baptized. Well, what are they doing that for? Well, they have a load of guilt, and they need to repent and be relieved of their guilt. Well, come on. We've got ceremonial um, ways that people can be cleansed. We've got all kinds of ceremonial rules. They had really expanded all of this. Um, um, Why don't you send them to us? And they can get cleansed that way. And had the disciples done that and said, okay, well, wait, just wait, everybody. Okay, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. I want you to go to these people, and they're going to uh, do whatever they do, uh, some extra biblical purification things. What would have happened to those people? Would they have gone away with no guilt? No, they would have had their guilt stay with them and they would not have gone away having the release of repentance that would ultimately bring them to to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and receive him. It would have been as useless as those empty wine pots or wine stone things. So 
What we have here, if you want to understand these early chapters of John, you have to understand that there's a transition going on. There's a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. We have in that first chapter, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Moses turns water into blood and brings a curse upon Egypt. Jesus turns water into wine and brings joy to a wedding. The Jews clung to the temple as their access to God. Jesus says, take this body, kill this body, and I'll raise it again in three days. My body, not this temple, is the access to the, is the, access to the Father. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's a transition. Nicodemus thought, I can do this through my Jewishness. I can do this through my skill with the law. Jesus says, no, that's not going to get you anywhere. You have to be born again. There's a transition. And if we want to understand this, we have to understand that there is a transition. A transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. A transition from, from trying to approach God through the works of the law to coming to the Father through the Son who is revealed by the Spirit. And it's easy to see why the Jews resisted this. They wanted to be the purveyors of all righteous spirituality. They didn't didn't want another spiritual authority. They didn't want a a rival religious system. They didn't want the, the light of the Son of God shining upon their hypocrisy. But if you think of this long line of guilty people, What they would have lost had they had nowhere to go in repentance and to bring the burden of the load of their guilt and to repent and to recognize ultimately the Son of God who came not with the law. It's not that there's anything wrong with the law. The problem with the law was that they couldn't keep it and so it brought death. But he came and brought them life because he was the second Adam that did perfectly what the first Adam failed to do and then went to the cross and bore the sin of the redeemed upon himself, and God raised him from the dead, a seal of God's approval of his work, and, and he ascended to the right hand of God and from there sent his Holy Spirit. This was the new covenant. And, you know, we have, a, um, we have the same thing in John's Gospel, chapter 5. When we get there, we're going to see about this um, invalid who's sitting by a pool, and he's... The great thing about the pool is that it gets stirred up once a year. And if you get in the water, when it's stirred up, you're whole. You're made whole. But he's been there for 38 years. What's the problem? He can't get in. It's like the law. What good is it if you can't get in? Life comes through doing it, but if I can't do it, it's no good. And so we have this today, a long line of people who, weigh, who, who have this guilt upon them. And there are those, like this unnamed Jew, who want to turn them away from repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and cause them to follow another gospel, which is not another gospel. And there's all kinds of gospels, the gospel of environmentalism, the gospel of social justice, the gospel of political correctness, the gospel of being woke and all 
all its accoutrements so we can virtue signal to everyone else so that we look righteous in the eyes of God, but we are or rather in the eyes of man, but we are not righteous in the eyes of God through these false gospels. And so as much as we don't seek conflict as a church, as much as we don't want to have conflict, if we are going to do what God has placed us to do, then we must declare the gospel of the grace of God faithfully. And when we preach the the gospel, brothers and sisters, we're going to attract persecution. We're going to attract persecution. So the enemy working through this unnamed Jew is not successful at waging an attack from without. So he changes his tactic. He changes his tactic, and he wages an attack from within. As we said before, he says, well, whatever. Sure looks like you're not doing as well as him. And he puts that seed of jealousy, plants that seed of jealousy in the hearts of these workers. And it brings great grief to John's disciples. And they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, they won't even name him. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, but a blame going on there. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Well, it wasn't exactly true. First of all, they weren't all going to him. We tend to exaggerate things when we feel um, uh, resentful. But let's not be too hard on these people because they were good men. They were good men, and they were calling people to repentance. But they'd lost their perspective. They'd lost their perspective. See, they were there... John's um, gospel was to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, to prepare people for the coming of Christ. But then when he arrives, they lose their perspective and say, could you go somewhere else so that our ministry can continue to grow? They lost their perspective. And brothers and sisters we can lose our perspective as well. And I'm convinced the attacks that are going to come upon us are not just going to come from without. They're going to come from within. So we have to be on guard. The Scripture says to us that jealousy in Song of Solomon, I think it's eight, jealousy is as cruel as the grave. And in Philippians 2 and 3, we have do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Jealousy. Anger, resentment. Let me talk to the kids for just a second. Let me talk to the kids. Are you listen, kids? Can you think of the last time you fought with your brother or sister? Was that this morning, maybe? When you're trying to get ready for church? Maybe someone took your shoe? I don't know. Why do we get angry at people? Why do we get angry at our brothers and sisters? Why do we get angry at people at school and get into fights and things like that? Is it not from a heart of jealousy? He's got something I should have. He's getting, uh, he's getting a mark that I should have got. He's making me feel smaller than I really am, and, and I'm not that small, actually. I can do a lot of things, and we feel the need to promote ourselves or to make ourselves higher because someone makes us feel small. But you know what helps us with all that? When we don't look at our brother or sister or a friend, we just look at Jesus and we see how great he is. And we we just don't even think about us. We just think about how can my life 
bring glory to him. Well, fortunately, the disciples of John had a good leader. They had a good leader. It's important that we have good leaders. You know, sometimes as elders, we struggle to be good leaders as elders in this church. And we as elders, we love each other very much. But we are dealing with things when we deal with the church that we feel passionate about. And it is possible from time to time that we can rub each other the wrong way. And if we allow those things to fester, it can allow a seed of jealousy or a seed of resentment to grow, and it can even split a church. So one of the things that we have to do as elders is we have to be honest with one another. We can't be afraid of a little bit of conflict. We have to say what we think, say what we feel. We have to pray for one another. We have to bathe what we do in prayer. We can't just meet arm's length all the time. We have to come together. We don't always do it right. But it's so important that we are knit together in love through prayer and through understanding that our mission is always to exalt Christ. Well, that was John's desire, and he gives them a proper perspective. So we're going to move from the jealousy of John's disciples to the joy of John. And I'll I'll move along because our time is getting away. Um, For John, there was no conflict because there was no competition. He realized... And he pointed out to his disciples where promotion comes from. It comes from, it doesn't come from a crowd of followers. It doesn't come from a person exalting him or herself. No, it comes from heaven. God the Father had exalted the Son. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. But that's not true of just a good, of someone that is good. That's also true of someone who is not good. Jesus had to point this out to Pontius Pilate at his trial. And we see in John 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless at all, unless it had been given to you from above. That's where his boldness, that's where our boldness comes from, is to understand where authority comes from. We might come into conflict with authority. Where does authority come from? It comes from God. Daniel had to point out to the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord rules over the kingdoms, kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whomsoever he will. I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood. In a democracy, we have an opportunity to cast our vote and to do what we can to make sure that righteousness prevails, and we ought to do that. But when the votes have been cast and tallied, recognize that all authority comes from God. So are you troubled about the position that somebody is in? Are you troubled that someone has received a promotion that you have not received? They could not receive it unless God allowed it. And if God allowed it, he did so for reasons that you, may not, you cannot understand, but for reasons that are ultimately for his glory and that will ultimately fulfill his purposes. And are you trying hard uh, to make your abilities known, to let people know how much you can do, um, powerful people that you think have the ability to promote you? Stop wasting your time. Just stop. Promotion comes from the Lord. Your, your only concern should be what the Lord sees you doing. It's, it's a tiring game to be po- politicking all over the place and to try to curry favor with powerful people all the time. It's not worth it. And so John looks and sees the lines of people that are coming to him getting shorter and shorter and shorter. 
and the lines that are going to Jesus getting longer and longer and longer. And he's comforted to know this, that this is from above and that, it, that this is the actual fulfillment of his ministry. How could he feel this way? Because he understood his part in the story. He was not in competition with Jesus. On the contrary, his ministry was to point people to him. So the more people that left him and went to Jesus, the more successful was his ministry. And to help his disciples understand this, he gives them the illustration of a wedding. Of a bridegroom and a bride and a best man. He talks about a friend of a bride, really a best man. And, there were, and we don't have time to get into it, but there were, um, in that, the, the ancient Eastern customs, it was the job of the friend of the bride or the best man to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And this was a fairly lengthy uh, affair. There was a lot that went on even before the day of the wedding. But over a period of time, um, even the planning of the day, the ultimate job of the best man was to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And after the weeks and the months, I think it was even months, that this whole process took place, finally that climactic moment was when the bride was given to the bridegroom and the best man pulls back into the shadows and rejoices to see the bride and the bridegroom unite. Rejoices to hear the voice of the bridegroom rejoicing over the bride. Far from there being a sense of jealousy or anything like that, there's the joy my work is done. And the two are united. Well, that's with the picture that John gives. He says, do you see who has the bride, the lost sheep of the house of Israel? That's the bridegroom. I'm the best man, and I'm just happy to see it happen this way. You know, if, uh, when February comes, there's not many things to look forward to in February, but in February, if you get up very early in the morning, a couple of hours before the sun rises, and it's a clear night, and you look into the southeastern sky, you will see hanging in the sky, bright in the southeastern sky, the planet Venus, brilliant in the sky. But as the two hours before that time and dawn come, as it gets closer, you'll see the streaks of dawn go across the sky, and its brilliance fades. But then when that sun breaks over the horizon, there's nothing left. It vanishes away. As it's in the sky at night, it's a, it's a harbinger of hope, a beacon of hope that the morning is coming. But when the sun comes, it melts away. Well, that was what John's ministry was supposed to be. And that's what our ministry is supposed to be as well. And that is why John makes this great statement in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. And you know, I think that's why we have so much joy in evangelism, if you've ever had the, the, the joy of leading someone to Christ or sharing the gospel with them, isn't it a joy unspeakable? Really? You know why? Because you're taking the spotlight off of yourself, off of that person. You're focusing that spotlight on Christ, and the joy is immeasurable. That's where joy comes from. It's not by, hey, everybody, look at me. It's not. It's by taking that and pointing it at Christ. You know, somebody once asked, Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission, why is it that you suppose that God used you so mightily in China? And Taylor replied, God was looking for someone small enough to use, and he found me. 
Are you small enough to be used? Am I small enough to be used? Or are we too big, too important, too invested in our own little fortunes, our own little plans and agendas? Well, to help his people, to help the disciples get a proper understanding of his, of his John's relative smallness relative to the Lord Jesus, he shows them in a beautiful way the preeminence of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. So we'll move to our last point. We've talked about the jealousy of John's disciple. We've talked about the joy of John. Our last point is the preeminence of Jesus, verse 31 to 36. And in, this, in these verses, John the Baptist uses the occasion of his disciples' jealousy to declare the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own position relative to him. And there's several things. He's from above. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He utters the words of God. And he speaks of the Father's infinite love for the Son. Those four things... And I mean, this is a treasure trove, and we can't possibly do justice to it in the minutes that we have. I hope on your own that you will study it. I hope in your small groups you will dig into what we have here. But let's, let's pass over it quickly. First of all, he was from above. John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Why was he the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? All the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied to Christ, but John caught a glimpse of Christ. He was the greatest. But he and they, now get this, were of the earth, belonged to the earth, and spoke in earthly ways. This does not mean for a moment that the words that they spoke that are recorded in Holy Writ in Scripture were any less inspired than the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to be red-letter Christians that prioritize the words of Jesus above other inspired writers. That's not what this, that's not what this means. But what they spoke, they had to learn, they had to receive. Sometimes they spoke things they didn't even understand. But not so with Jesus. He was with the Father and with the Holy Spirit from a past eternity. And he, what he spoke, he declared from what he had seen from firsthand experience. He spoke from omniscience. No one had to teach the Lord Jesus anything. Equal with the Father, he was omniscient. We say, I don't think that's right. It says in Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience. What about that? Well, it does say that, but I think the thought there is he learned the cost of obedience. In a past eternity in the, with the Father and the Son in perfect communion, he would never have been subjected to hunger or to thirst or to sadness or pain, but he took upon himself human flesh without diminished deity. He took that upon himself, and he learned the cost of obedience. But everything he knew, he knew from omniscience. He knew from firsthand experience. He'll say, well, how can that be? Somebody asked me the other day, what about that verse in Matthew 24 that says, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. You say, well, now you've backed yourself into a corner. But So let's talk about that because that's important. Jesus is God, truly God, truly man. He is one with the Father. He could say before Abraham was, I am. And in Philippians 2 and 6, he says, 
who being in the form of God, I'm reading this in the New King James Version, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, the Lord Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He does not, and he does not move outside of the place that he has taken, even though his deity was undiminished. So as equal with God, he is omniscient. Yet, if you will, if I could put it this way, he willingly limits his omniscience to the position that he has taken. So Jesus was preeminent because his origin was from heaven, because he spoke from firsthand experience, from what he had seen and heard. Yet no one, yet no one, it says, receives him. And this is hyperbole. Um, because in the next verse it says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. You know why? You know why it is that you set your seal that God is true by receiving Jesus? Because of what we have in verse 34. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. What does that mean? Whenever Jesus speaks, whenever Jesus spoke, Jesus... um, Jesus acts in perfect harmony. He speaks and works in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So that means that if you receive the testimony of the Lord Jesus, you receive the testimony of God the Father. It also means that if you reject the Lord Jesus, you reject the Father. Don't give me this, that you believe in God, but you don't believe in Jesus. You deny, you deny Jesus, you deny God. You can't have it both ways. Because when Jesus spoke, he spoke the words of the Spirit. The Spirit was active in every word he spoke. Not just the words that are inspired in Scripture. That's why it's so serious to claim that Jesus could sin. Because everything that came from him was in direct harmony with the Spirit. And to suggest that is, a, is, a, is blasphemous. Even though some people do it in ignorance. So that means that you can't say that you believe God and deny the Son because God gave testimony that this is my beloved Son. Reject him, you reject God. So everything that the Lord Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. This could not be said of John. Even though, he, as, as we read, he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Everything he reco- is recorded that he said, of course, is inspired. But not everything he did was by the Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew 11. John's been in prison for some time, and he's growing discouraged. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and says this, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And you can have compassion on that, but you, but you understand when you read that, that he was from the earth. Jesus was from heaven. But of the Lord Jesus we read, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9. And finally, we see the intimate relationship, the intimate love between the Father and the Son. Why has the Father given everything into his hands? Because the Father loves the Son. Why is it that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life? Because the Father loves the Son. Do you want to know this morning what your security is? is, as a believer, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what your security is? It's the Father's love for the Son. As secure as the Father's love for the Son is, is as secure as you are.
if you can consider and understand the value that God places upon the person and the work of Christ, that's where your security rests. And it's in the strength of the promise of God that he cannot lie. There is no greater security than that. But if you can understand that, you must also understand the wrath of God towards those that reject his beloved son. Those who count his offering as nothing and trample upon his blood. What a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God whose son that he loves so immeasurably and whose work he values so immeasurably to fall into the hands of a God whose son you have rejected, blasphemed, and dishonored. And when you consider the immeasurable love of the father for his son, it is a fearful thing to reject the son. Well, I just want to say this in conclusion. Recognizing the surpassing greatness of the son of God and understanding his small part in it, pointing a lost people to him, John is willing to be extinguished so that there would be no rival to Christ's ministry. Nothing to stand between him, between the Lord Jesus and his bride. Not long after this, John was thrown in prison because he spoke against an evil king and an evil king's acts, and he did it with boldness, and he won for himself some powerful, friend, powerful enemies, and he was beheaded in prison. That one who came to, that was not the light but came to bear witness of the light, his life was snuffed out. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And brothers and sisters, I want to say this to all of us today. If we point to the light, if we point people to Christ, we will be hated. And it is possible that in the weeks and months that lie ahead, we all may have to pay a high price for faithfulness, faithfulness to our God. The question is, are you, am I, small enough to be used? Are our plans and fortunes and self-importance, do they make us too big to be used? So as we come to the Lord's table and we look back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and we see, we see one that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that we, through his poverty, might be rich. And as we see that one hanging on the cross, and we see the infinite love, the infinite love that the Lord Jesus has for the Father and that the Father has for the Son. And as we see that love as displayed in his sacrifice, and as we feel that love from, that comes from an ascended Christ in heaven who has sent his Holy Spirit. We feel ourselves as brothers and sisters pulled into the warmth of that embrace. And here at this table, we find strength to face an uncertain future, to face another week, to face whatever lies ahead. Because the Son of God lives, because he is our Lord and Savior, because he loves us, and because the Father loves the Son. Let's come to the Lord's table together. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity.
Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.